To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch buck? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Yo, what's happening, guys? Brand new podcast this week, so I got a good one. Um, so I've got on Omni Warner. Uh, if you haven't heard of him, he lives in New Mexico and kind of hunts the the Four Corners area in there. Uh, I I got to meet him a couple weeks ago. You know, I asked him to be on the podcast, and then we connected to through a phone call, and then this podcast, and then um, I just met him at the the Western Hunting Expo down there, and uh, just couldn't uh, couldn't be a better guy. Um, so humble and so generous with with information on this podcast and just great insight into bow hunting he works really hard at it and it, it's no surprise why he's consistently successful so i really enjoyed this episode takes us a little while to warm up but once we get going um it, it's just awesome content and an awesome podcast so thanks to omni for being on I want to thank our sponsors for this week's show. So Sig Sauer was a major sponsor for this show as they gave me an Oscar 9 spotting scope to give away. Um, man, this just this makes me feel so good when I can give away, you know, when I can give away things to my guests uh, for being on and, and, and being so generous with their content and information and having these authentic conversations with me. So this was really neat. Sig Sauer gave me this, and I am so impressed with this spotting scope. So it's the Oscar 9 80 mil objective lens. It's got a, a 27 by 55 power uh, uh, lens on the front. Just great crisp glass. I guarantee you can hold this up to the to the best glass out there, and it stands up. Uh, just so impressed with this scope and what I can see out of it. And so, uh, man, just thrilled to be able to give one to Omni and have them put it to good use. So um, that was really cool. Also, check out their range finders. I believe they're the best ones on the market. Uh, they have binoculars. Uh, uh, rifle scopes and then check out their bdx system this bdx system what it does is it links your rifle scope to your range finder to an app in your phone and just gives you all the pertinent information to make any shot whether that's mid-range long range you know whatever the case is uh it, it's just a great program make sure to check it out and uh check out sig sour if you're in the market for any new optics I also want to thank Everly Stock. Uh, Everly Stock makes great packs, and and um, they really stand up to the abuse we put on uh, on them. I just had Glenn Everly on the podcast, and it was just an awesome podcast. And um, some of the gear that they're supplying to to special operations to snipers and things and to our military is just awesome and then uh, some of the hunters that are using them including all of us at the the eastmans love their packs and so um you know i always mention the packs i use the kite pack little big top the destroyer you know the other great one that we that we talked about um is their mainframe their mainframe is an actual hard frame that really packs the weight well and i use this pack I use it mostly for packing quarters and things. 
Um, but but you can you can individualize or, or or specialize this pack to your different needs. Like you have, you can put the little big top and you can connect that to the mainframe. You can use just a dry bag, and, and then it has all these accessories with with wings that come on it, accessory pouches that you can trick it out with to accessorize your pack exactly how you want it. And truth be known that. That pack with a dry bag on it, just a simple dry bag, is about the lightest setup you can go. And um, I've used that on backcountry hunts as well, and it works really good. But uh, if you're in the market for new packs, make sure to check them out, Eberly Stock. And with that, just getting back from um, the Western Hunting Expo, man, it's so humbling. Like, a, you know, I see these numbers on the podcast, and I get messages and things, but to go in person and to to meet some of you different guys that are out there that, that really connect with the podcast, man, it just means the world to me. Uh, it's so nice. Um, and like I say, just so humbling to, uh, take photos and, to, to have guys and come up and tell you what the podcast means. And I, I heard a lot that guys are working out to the podcast. Um, and I think that's great. Podcasts to work out to are so tough to find that, you know, they have to have a touch of motivation in them and, uh, has to kind of excite you. But when you find one you like, it's just effortless. You can just put on the miles and you're, you know, you're so engaged in the podcast. And I just love this format of podcasting where we can listen, you know, as we're driving, listen on a plane, listen while we work. I mean, if I get to listen to a podcast while I'm, you know, building or doing construction, uh, it, it almost feels like I'm like I'm cheating. You know, I'm so engaged in the podcast, getting my work done and I get done with the work day and it kind of been entertained, you know, for half the day or whatever. So uh, I just think this platform is so cool. I just want to continue to grow it. And uh, I, I just really appreciate all you guys. You know, I I say it all the time, but man, you guys are the reason why this podcast makes it. And so um, just awesome. Went and did the show. Gosh, I've got some great recordings coming up, including this one that I'm releasing to you today. I'm so stoked with this conversation um, with Omni. He killed it on this podcast. So um, this is a great one. Uh, got another controversial one coming up for you guys. I may have to... I like I love to play them in their entirety, but there's a couple things that I just I may have to edit them out. I, I know we're all big boys and we can handle it, uh, but there there's just uh it it's a crazy podcast, but uh it's a really funny one. Had me and Guy Eastman sat in, he was rolling on it, and um, it it's a wild one. So uh, we'll be releasing that to you guys um, uh, along. You know, I I released that controversial podcast with Making Hunting Great Again, so. Um, you know, my job's just to put out content and be myself and uh, see how it connects with you guys. So uh, that's what I'm here to do. But yeah, just thank you guys for all the support. Um, oh, I've got to get you guys. Uh, I've got a new promo for the podcast. Um, so this is good. So um, again, you you go. You want to get a subscription to the podcast uh eastman's hunting journal eastman's bow hunting journal um I'm, i mean the articles i just pour my heart and soul on these things i've got a great bear article coming up and i'm just so impressed with all our staff writers and and uh what they put out and then the subscriber stories are so good like i told you um tony treach has been on there and, and our guest today omni warner he's been published a couple times in there um, you know, he's just constantly producing good critters, you know, bulls, and we really get into to elk hunting in this one. Man, this is just a, a, a great podcast, you know, so um, yeah, stoked to get it out to you guys. I'll put that promo code at the end for a subscription. 
uh, make sure to check our out our Beyond the Grid episodes, Eastman's Hunting TV, and everything we do over here. And uh, again, I just appreciate the support, guys. Um, let's get this podcast rolling. All right, I'm live here. I've got I'm Omni, Omni Warner on there. Let me try that again. Um, okay, I'm live here. Be the first, you wouldn't <laughs> be the first person to mispronounce it, my name, so you're all good. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, the pronunciations get me sometimes. That's for sure on the podcast. You know, you just try your best and you try to have um, you know your guests say it on there. But yeah, I'm sure that's not the first time you've heard a bad pronunciation of your name. No, it's all good. I'll respond about anything. So. <laughs> well, uh, thanks, Omni, for taking the time and being on the podcast. Um, man, it's just great to talk to you. I just, I kind of found you through social media and then just started looking, and um, you, you've had a ton of success all over the West, and I, I really like uh, how much hunting I see you doing with your family and in hunting camps. And um, how many boys do you have, Omni? We've got, uh, my wife and I have two boys and then a daughter. Our family's kind of spread out. Our oldest boy is, he'd be 23, he's 24 actually tomorrow. And then our middle child is a senior in high school right now, so he's 17 years old. So we've got a pretty good space there, which has been beneficial for hunting. And then our daughter, our baby, she's only seven years old. So here in a few years, we'll see if she picks up hunting or not. I don't know how that'll go. Yeah, well, you built so, quite the hunting team. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah between them, my brother's got several kids. I've got couple brothers around i think we talked about that i've got two brothers that live here and both of them have boys that are up and hunting as well now so yep and you're located uh farmington new mexico we are i was fortunate to actually um i wasn't necessarily born here i was born in the southern part of the state and then when my parents were going to college and then this is home though where my parents grew up and so we live right in the four corners area if you know where uh, New Mexico, Colorado, Arizona, and Utah all intersect. We're right in that corridor, which has actually been beneficial for hunting because you can be in Colorado and Arizona and Utah with almost in a stone's throw. Oh, so. wow. Yeah, I can see where that'd be beneficial. Well, you've made the most out of it. Uh, gosh, I've just seen some awesome bucks and awesome bulls that, that uh, you and your family have turned up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been fun. So yeah. every you... year is a new adventure. Yeah, you take advantage of it. The four corners. Yeah, that's great. So, you know, so so much of what we're really effective hunting is right around right around us, stuff that we can get to and scout. And uh, we just get a good feeling for that country, I think, too. So, yeah, I can see where being in that four corners and being able to run scouting trips up north to Colorado, which you've done really well in, around your home state in New Mexico and and, uh, you know, then in Utah and Arizona, like you said. Mm-hmm. You're right. I, I actually, I, I think that's been a lot of my successes. We spend a lot of days in the summer in Colorado or Utah or in the mountains, even in New Mexico when we can draw tags there. So it just spending time in the field. Um, and then we grew up backpacking, you know, as young men and stuff in Colorado too. So just, I don't know, it feels like home. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, that uh, back backpacking is such a great base to have, uh, such a, a great mental toughness too, and just 
it's it's like the easiest way that us uh, bow hunters can kind of separate ourselves from the pack is just through hard work and backpacking back into remote places and getting to remote country. Uh, it's one of the the easiest but also toughest advantages because it takes hard work. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, I, there's just something like almost freeing though of being in the back country or in the high country of Colorado. So, I mean, you got, we've got the San Juan and the Wimanooch Wilderness right here by us, and both those wildernesses are just absolutely huge. There's just miles and miles of wilderness trails and lakes and streams. So, it, just, yeah, those are giant wildernesses, just uh, filled with with uh, really good habitat too, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's uh, it, it's amazing, you know, in that in that country up and through there. Um, it, it seems like when you're backpacking it, doesn't that seem like the purest form of hunting? You know, there's no vehicles, <laughs> there's no advantage. Like, like it is, uh, you know, it's all about what you can carry on your back. And it, it just, it just feels like you're connected so well to like the landscape or you really feel like you're part of it. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, what's been amazing to me too, though, is when we started doing it, we rarely ran into people, but it just anymore. There's just getting to be more and more people, even in the backcountry. So we always we always used to have my brother and I used to always have the motto that we just outwork everybody or get a little bit farther, a little bit deeper. And now it's like you get deeper, and there's still somebody there. Um, but not that you're overrun with people. It's just it's amazing how hard people are willing to work nowadays. I guess that's what's impressed me is there's a lot of hardcore hunters out there, a lot of people that are willing to work really hard to try to get it, to try to have success in the backcountry or anywhere hunting for that matter. Yeah, that's exactly so. right. Yeah, same thing when I first started. You know, you you could always separate yourself with that hard work and effort and get back there, and it felt like you were the only one back there doing it. But, yeah, it's gained popularity, and there's more guys doing it, and it – you know, it's just a, a new age of hunting where we got to continue to adapt and evolve. And it's it's strange. Um, you know, guys in country doesn't really change how many animals in, are, are in there. But I, I don't know. There's something with the experience of not seeing boot tracks or not seeing hunters and having it to yourself. That's my absolute favorite. And you're always just trying to find mm-hmm. those those little spots or, or your timing on spots. And, boy, when you have it all to yourself – um, that's really fun as it's just like you versus the mule deer, just matching wits with them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This, I remember the very first mule deer I killed in the backcountry all by myself, um, and that wasn't even the biggest deer I killed, but just like, I don't know, the overwhelming um, – you just feel extremely humble to be able to kill something in the backcountry all by yourself, load it up in your backpack, and then carry it out. Um and unless you've ever done that, I don't think you really appreciate how hard it is and just the reward of it. Um, it just the emotions are can almost overcome you. And that's, you know, we took a friend with us the first time about three years ago, and he harvested a buck. And when he shot his buck, he just broke down bawling. You know, I shouldn't say bawling, but crying. And it's like the highs are higher and the lows are lower in the backcountry. Um, and the animal doesn't even have to be bigger, but those highs and lows are just amplified. And I don't know if it's because you work so hard for it, if you're on the top of the mountains and you're just closer to God or if it, you know, what it is, but it's, it is very special to be back there and hunt. Um, and then just to actually have success in the back country. But. Yeah. Probably a combination of all of it, really, you know, it, it's everything, <laughs> but you're right. It's absolutely overwhelming. And, 
um, you know, sometimes it feels like it's so impossible. And then when it comes together, you make the right moves. Yeah, it's uh, uh, absolutely overjoyed. And that's what keeps us coming back and planning the next adventure and those miles. It, it's amazing. It gets in your blood. And then um, you want to work hard for it. The harder you work, the, the more it means to you. And so you start chasing that adventure more so than the accomplishment, I think. Or I think that's yeah. the goal anyways. Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah, it is much more about the adventure than even trying to harvest something for sure. Yeah. Well, it it gets tougher and tougher. <clears throat> There's um, you know, more and more guys doing it, which also makes it tough to get tags. I know where you're at in that that south um the southwest there, the New Mexico, Arizona. Gosh, those tags are getting tougher to come by. Um mm-hmm. you you guys aren't hunting 10 10 point spots every time you're going out, I don't imagine. <laughs> No, 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 that's, you know, a lot of our strategy is just trying to figure out how to get a tag every single year, um, whether it's a leftover tag or units. And if you watch it, they kind of hop around a little bit and which units are easier to draw. Um, I should add it up, but I think I've harvested bucks out of about six or seven different units in Colorado. Wow. Um, just, to, you know, on the high country. And that didn't even count the Utah stuff or New Mexico. But we were... Yeah, every year we just kind of look to see what tag we feel like we can draw or get a hold of a tag one way or another, um, and then just play that in our odds. And, you know, we usually bank on some backup plan as well, whether it's a Utah tag or something in New Mexico or whatever we can kind of piece together. That so. is a real feat. Uh, six different units in Colorado mm-hmm. that you've harvested bucks at, that you've been successful. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, you're always exploring new country. Well, it's never success is never a given for you guys. Uh, you got to earn it in that country. I suppose that you probably um, we were talking about your scouting earlier and trying to locate bucks or or look at that country prior to season. And then uh, uh, do you rely upon that scouting more or covering country during season and finding the bucks? Or what would you say is your secret to to being successful in six different units? Yeah, I would. We spend a lot of time during the summer scouting, um, specifically for deer. And this year is probably the exception, only because I had the sheep tag. We didn't get to scout as much. But we'll as soon as that snow starts melting out, um, if I could get in there in May, I'd love to. But it just seems like a lot of the country's covered up in May. But for sure, in mid to late June, and then heavy in July, and then the first part of August. We'll be in there almost every weekend, and it's just like a weekend warrior <clears throat> trying to get out of work on Friday, get up there for you know a day or two days. And uh, we usually try to just locate bucks or figure out where we want to be and then get back into that same area. And I always like to have at least two different options. I think I learned that after the first year I actually hunted high country. I felt like I only had one option. And after that option didn't come through, after that, I kind of made the commitment. It's like, I'm going to have two or three different options. Um, and we try to actually locate, you know, a buck or several bucks that we want to hunt. And then just based on how the hunt goes, you kind of get a feel for, is it time to pull out and go somewhere else? Or are we just committed because everything's coming together in this area? Um, so it just kind of varies once the hunt gets going. I don't, once our hunt's going on, you know, once we get in there, we typically don't just keep exploring. We know what buck we want to hunt. We know what basins we want to be in. The only time we'll bail is if hunting pressure gets too high or we shoot a buck out of that area and it's time to go to the next. You know, it's just kind of a variety of things. Like I said, it's almost a gut feel on when it's time to move. 
Yeah, so. that makes good sense. Yeah, it's um, that's smart to have a uh, have a game plan and then follow through and know where those bucks are. I know, I know what you mean. That scouting time is, is so important to cover country and figure out which basins are holding the bucks because. You know, there can be 10, 12, 15 basins that look right that doesn't hold a buck in them. you got to find that one that they like, that one that they hang in or the couple that they hang in. Um, yeah, and, and I also like what you said about a plan and a backup plan. You know, it's, it seems like you can get lost on a hunt, and it's it's too tough to figure out a spot from scratch or to commit to a spot from scratch that you'd never walked into or never hunted. Um, so that, that makes really good sense having your plan and your backup plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah it, it's worked for us. Yeah. I see, I find myself, I've, I've got, you know, I'll, I'll have a game plan and places I've scouted, but I just, I love to explore during season and go <laughs> see, you know, go try to find another buck in another basin or to, to keep pushing on or, or sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll bust a buck out and then I, I just feel like I've got to move to a different drainage or, um, but we're all different. We all kind of develop our tactics and not that one of them's mm-hmm. right and one of them's wrong. It's just what, what we found that works for us. Isn't it interesting that way? I mean, it's like you find success and you kind of gravitate to that, whatever, you know, is your success or however you feel like you have confidence. And I think that's probably it more than anything is you, you need to have confidence in whatever your plan is, or your strategy. When you have confidence in it, then you can typically stick with it. Um, if you don't have the confidence in it, it's like you just kind of, I don't know, maybe it's time to pack up and go home if you don't have confidence in your plan. Yeah, um, it you do have to be walking around the woods with confidence, don't you? Both in your your skills mm-hmm. to be able to, you know, you, you got to have confidence in your bow to know when you see that deer that that any deer is worth the effort that you're gonna go try to kill them. You know that that uh, you don't look at it as as impossible or that you can't accomplish it. And then I think you're right as as confidence in your game plan as you go in there. Um, it has to be working or it has to be a progression into your, your plan uh, where the next spot is and continuing to do it. But you're right. You just you build that confidence through experience and you get a couple uh, successful hunts under your belt. And then it seems like you can just build on it from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And I, I noticed that we all kind of develop our own stalking skills as well. Uh, as far as how aggressive we're going to be and how patient and how passive, like you kind of get your own feel for the stock. Do you notice uh, between uh, like you and your, you hunt with your one brother a lot, or you've got a couple brothers there that you hunt mm-hmm. with. Do you notice that your guys' um, skill set is really similar because it was developed together or do you see differences in it? No, I'd say we're very different. Um, and that's, it's always fun for me to, Wesley, I probably hunt high country with him more than anyone else, but um, I get a, I'll learn a lot from Wesley because he's more patient than I am and he'll come up with maybe even better strategies. Whereas me, I, sometimes I get too aggressive and I just want to make it happen right now. And so he, he's always able to get closer to the animals. It amazes me how close he can get to the animals. And I don't, I guess I don't um, take the patience that he does to try to get in right on top of the animal. I just want to get close enough to get a shot and try to make it happen right away. Um, but I, I'd say we actually complement each other quite a bit, and particularly like if we're sitting there on a point trying to make a strategy. Um, we don't always have the exact same ideas, but our d- ideas usually molded together complement really well. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, 
That makes really good sense. I bet you guys do complement each other well. It'd be so nice to have, uh, you know, somebody that's more patient than you or somebody that's more aggressive than you sitting on the vantage point. So much of that killing good deer is just making a good game plan, like being able to see where that buck is and, and look at the, the the terrain and the rolls. And then come up with a good game plan. It seems like when you got a good game plan, it turns into like a, a high percentage opportunity. Like you're just you're weighing out, you know, everything that can go wrong and you're kind of crossing that off the list, you know, as far as like wind coming in from above them with an uphill thermal. OK, check, you know, or sometimes mm-hmm. they're on the lee wind side, which makes it really tough. But it, it seems like the more of those boxes you can check and just have a rock solid game plan, just the better your chance at killing that buck. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Making a plan is what it's all about. So, yeah. So, <clears throat> so when you make a plan. You'll talk it through with your brother, and then do you have any tricks for like taking photos of where you're gonna be or the 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 landmarks you're gonna mark? Being a muley guy, I know you have gone over on a muley stock and then lost your place. I think we all have. <laughs> so so you get pretty good at trying to come up with a, a rock solid game plan. So what's yours when you find a buck in a good location and he beds? Uh, I would say my strategy is I'm flexible. Um, so, you know, we come up with a plan and, and you work the plan as best as you can. Um, but there's times that it's like, it's time to abort or time to change or call an audible, whatever you want to say. Um, and I feel like I, I adjust and adapt quickly, um, if I need to. Oh, that's so, a, that's I mean, a that's, great point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, uh, adapting to the, to the conditions that you're given, Oh, that's so good because you're right. You always get over to the spot and the bucks change beds or he's no longer there. Maybe he's up feeding. Oh, and if you're so stuck to your game plan, then you can't adapt on the fly and go, no, I don't need to be to that rock. Now that I'm over here, I can see it. The land lays Mm -hmm. out better to go down to the edge of these trees or something. That's a really good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Being able to adapt on the fly is so important. Um. Yeah, well, and I was stating the importance of a game plan, which I think is important, and I think it does turn into a high percentage play. But you're right. The conditions are always changing on those deer, and you make it over there, and then you don't have a shot at him. You know, his vitals are covered because he's lower down the hill. And so now your plan changes to now Now I've got to wait for him to come out. Or um, I, I really like that. I think that adapting – in the stock is really important. That's I like that you brought that up. Yeah, that might sound like a contradiction of building a plan, but then calling an audible. But that's, you know, it's just like what you said. You, things that things change or they don't work out exactly like you planned. So, just being able to recognize, I guess, the situation and change to it. So. Yeah, it's uh, you you gotta you gotta <clears throat> keep your calm and keep uh. Uh, you keep thinking and theorizing or keep thinking all the way through the, the process through that stock. Cause you're right. You never know when it's going to change and, and adapting too. So that must mean that um, it, it's not, uh, do you always look to stock a high country mule deer in his bed or will you look uh, for him to be out feeding and try to harvest him that way? Yeah, I've done, I <clears throat> I'd actually say I've done about everything on that. So I've shot deer out of their beds or, you know, when they rise from the beds or shot bucks when they're feeding. So it doesn't, it, for me, it's more like, what's the situation? Does it, is a situation right? Is it something that I can actually get close enough to make a shot? Um, okay. 
Yeah, so yeah. so you keep open and fluid like on your stock as well. You're not so rigid mm-hmm. as you have to bed them in their second bed. You try to take advantage wherever they are, whatever they're doing. You look at the situation and go, gosh, can I make it in there to shoot that? I think I can. That ridge is there. The wind's good. I'm going to go for it. Mm-hmm. That's right. And that's, you know, every situation is different. You talk about second beds in the morning and you've witnessed the same thing. Plenty of people talked about that. But, you know, sometimes you just know it's like that buck's not going to stay in that bed very long. And so I'm not going to be able to get in in time to get a shot or maybe I am. And that that's probably just the adapting part. It's like I don't have one strategy in that. Um, it just kind of depends on the situation, how far away I am, how close I fit how quick I can get in on him to get a shot. And, you know, it's all those variables. So, yeah, uh, it is. It's weighing those variables and, and seeing, you know, what you can make work. And I'd say I'm a little bit more rigid with high country mule deer, but I understand exactly what you're saying. You know, like when, when I'm hunting elk or hunting mule deer during the rut or it's just your, anytime you spot one, you're looking at, at the right conditions to be able to move in just anything Anything that you can work the land or work to your advantage or getting close and anything that kind of makes sense to you where you go, yeah, yeah, I can make that work or or no, I can't. And I think a lot of that comes from experience and comes from failing and, you know, you, you mess up a stalker, <laughs> yeah. you get too aggressive and you go, well, that didn't work. Gosh, why didn't I just let him bed down? You know, why did I I hustle in? And so it, it is like a I like we were talking earlier, you kind of develop your own skills for what's right and wrong. But but mm-hmm. it's not black and white in your head when you're looking at a big mule deer. Like it's a really gray area what you can do and what you can't do. You're just relying upon that experience and that instincts to kind of hopefully uh, direct you to the right game plan or the right play when you believe you can kill them. But that, that also comes back to your confidence of just uh, killing enough deer and knowing what deer you can get in on and what deer you can't. Mm-hmm. Failing enough times, right? Blowing enough stocks or having enough missed opportunities to chalk up the learnings from them all. So, yeah, that's exactly <clears throat> it. Well, I, I want to get into elk. You and uh, your family have done so good for elk. But uh, first off, I've got we've got the best sponsors on the podcast, and so Sig, um, they came out with this new Sig Spotter Oscar Eight, and this is their new spotting scope. And so they gave an extra one to me to give away on the podcast to a guest. And, um, man, you're going to make good use of this, Omni. I think it's going to be perfect <laughs> oh, for yeah. you. So it's be a, way cool. Yeah, and it's um, really good glass. They're contending with the best glass on the market. It's a 27 by 55 eyepiece. It's got an 80 millimeter objective lens on it. Um, I used it all year, and I fell in love with this spotting scope. And the 80 millimeter is a little bigger spotting scope. But, boy, you can just see the world when you get up there. And so – I used it mule deer season, and a lot of them were hard-horned, and we were seeing them miles off. There wasn't one deer that I couldn't identify what it was, if it was a shooter, what it looked like. It's just an absolute awesome scope. So um, hang on after the podcast, and I'll get your address, and we'll send you one out. That's awesome, Brian. I'll put it to use this this fall if I can get me a tag. Yeah, yeah, awesome. So that'd be way cool. Thank you. I bet you're working hard on your research to make sure you get a tag this year, huh? <laughs> yeah, we'll figure something out. Yeah. So it's getting tougher and tougher in uh Colorado too. You mentioned six different units. There's a lot of good buck like I'm always impressed with the trophy quality 
that I think's all throughout the West. It's um, mm-hmm. these big deer exist in a bunch of different units in a bunch of different states, and it's it's really just going in and figuring them out and hunting hard, and it's amazing what you can turn up. Yeah, it is. It is. Mm-hmm. That's. I think I heard somebody say it's like don't chase the bucks that are you know three states away or whatnot there's big mule deer in almost every state and there's actually big mule deer close to anyone. And that's, you know, we've, we've proven that time and time again. Um, we proved it this year, even in New Mexico with my brother's tag. So nice. Your brother uh, mm-hmm. killed a really good one in New Mexico this year on an easy draw tag, huh? Uh, nothing in New Mexico for deer is easy to draw, but <laughs> oh, gotcha. he did, yeah, right. <laughs> he did kill it. And, you know, and it's just, and, you know, it's the area or the units up here in the northern part of the state, which is known for bigger deer anyways. But it's like you don't have to travel all the way to three states away. There are big deer um, around your home if you can just spend the time scouting. And that, and that was the difference on his hunt, I would say. <clears throat> so he killed a buck and then two other friends that we were hunting with, they both killed really good bucks as well. But it's just because we scouted it and spent a lot of time in there before the hunt even. Uh, had trail cameras, glass, just covering country before the season, and we knew which bucks we wanted to target during the hunt. Oh, that's so. that's right. I remember the hunt now. And, um, yeah, with uh, those three guys just bomber bucks. Man, that one, uh, mm-hmm. all three of them were absolutely incredible, all in one unit. Yep, they were. So it was an incredible hunt. What a testament to your guys' scouting, turning up those deer in those canyons that hold bucks like that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Man, that is incredible. Yeah, good on you guys. So you were in on the hunt too this year. I was. I was with. I was actually right with my brother when he shot his buck, and then not to necessarily name drop people, but I was with Jeremy whenever he harvested his buck as well. So. Man, that thing had to look so big on the hoof, but all you guys have harvested giant mule deer consistently, but gosh, that thing was sure a specimen. It had to look really big on the hoof. Oh, yeah. Jeremy's buck was very, very impressive. So, <laughs> Man, yeah, it's probably one cool. of the bigger deer I've actually seen on the hoof alive. So Yeah, all three of those things were amazing, but yeah, that one was incredible, too. Um, Yeah, that's... uh. So, so during your scouting, did you guys find any of those bucks? We did. Um, we'd actually, so the buck that Mark killed, we'd glassed him before the season. And we actually said, no, we'll just save him because he's not as big. And I don't know what we were thinking. I just can't judge deer very well, I guess. And then Jeremy's buck, we had pictures of him before the season. So we knew the buck was in there, but we hadn't actually laid eyes on it. But we knew the buck lived in, in a little core area. Um, and then where my brother killed his buck, <clears throat> there were some other bucks in there and we actually ended up turning his buck up and we'd never seen it, but there were two other bucks that were in that country that we knew of. So, boy, that's yeah, incredible. Just, uh, yeah, just, um, like you say, you guys have learned that ground, uh, around where you live, you know, so well, or those units around where you live, being able to scout them, get familiar with them and, and learn where those those bucks are i'm sure you can hike a lot of those canyons and not see a buck yeah it is isn't it crazy how much country does not hold deer or big animals in it oh it always surprises me and how much good country too (laughs) like it looks perfect it looks like a a mule deer buck would be living in there and you might sit in there for a day and a half and you just don't turn any up they uh big muley bucks like where muley bucks like yeah yeah that's true 
Huh. Well, and you guys have done dang good uh, elk hunting too. I've just been so impressed at some of the size of the bulls that you guys have been able to to arrow consistently. You guys got some good good elk hunting around the four corners as well. Yeah, New Mexico is a fun state to hunt elk in. Um, so, and then if you can't get a tag in New Mexico, Colorado's not far away, and almost that stuff's over the counter. But that's when my brother and I, when we usually put in New Mexico, we just kind of chalk it up as a bonus if we can ever get an elk tag into Mexico or even a deer. Um, but we've just been fortunate to draw a few tags recently in New Mexico. So. Man, oh man. Yeah. They, um, some great bulls down there. Um, yeah, they're good on you guys. A little bit of luck goes a long ways, right? If you can just get the tag and then put the effort in, um, and get into some good action. Mm-hmm. It is. And then it's so Two years ago, I actually killed the biggest bull I've ever killed. Um, and you know that from, as well as everybody. It's like 2018 was the worst year ever for horn growth, for moisture, particularly in the southwest. Maybe Montana wasn't as bad, but New Mexico, Arizona, southern Utah. I mean, it was just terrible in 2018. So I feel extremely fortunate to harvest the bull that I did in 18. Um and then we get a great year, and we don't kill bulls as big as that, but, I mean, it's still, it, I don't know, it's a lot of fun. And then, But our, our rut was, this year was kind of a tough hunt. We didn't get into a lot of bulls. Uh, just the bulls we got into, we were able to actually capitalize on them. We didn't, we didn't blow opportunities. We didn't miss shots, and that was just almost an anomaly. It's like we never got really winded by a bull that we were trying to hunt. Every bull we got onto and tried to kill, we actually got fortunate enough to kill him this year so that's making usually doesn't work that way you know that (laughs) (laughs) yes i do know that yeah usually (laughs) failure is a prerequisite it's so nice when you um when you are making quality plays like that and um uh, when you're when you're firing off all cylinders and you're elk hunting and you're seeing elk and it seems like elk you know i don't know if you hunt them like i do but i hunt them really aggressively like i've got to find them and then i've just got to go get into them and see if i can make something happen it it's never really where i sit back for a day or two or watch them and plan this stock it's usually like you know find these elk find a group elk with a bull and maybe i don't get on them the first night because they're too far but you know eventually i just got to go get into the mix and kind of move with the herd and just see if i can get in on them and so you know, like what you guys did, capitalizing on opportunities is so important for bow hunting. But it just sounds like um, you were hunting really effectively and efficiently, keeping the wind right the whole time and making quality plays and not giving yourself away. And, and uh seemed like you guys found some success doing it. We did. Um, it's funny when you say that because what, what actually came to mind is like when we elk hunt, I just well put running shoes on. Um, I mean, you're a runner, so you kind of probably get that. Yeah, I love it. That's my elk hunting, too. We run. Um, It's like when the elk are going, and I don't know if it's that way everywhere, because I've I've hunted elk in Colorado and Arizona, I guess would be the states that I've hunted elk in. But in New Mexico, it's like the elk travel, and you got to be ready to cover miles. And when I've hunted them in Colorado, it's like, yeah, they might cover basins, um, but they're in the basin. But New Mexico, they'll go from a feeding area to a watering area and bedding area, and they might cover three to four miles. And I think my brother's bull, we should have logged it, but we crossed three or four large canyons um, when we killed his bull. And we literally were running to try to keep up with the elk and then get wind in our favor and then circle into the right position. 
and it wasn't much different um, when I killed my bull as well. It's, I don't, what I, I don't want to spout off miles, but we covered enough country even on my bull that it's like, you know, you're not going to sit back a half mile away or even a half mile from the road and get into the elk or call them to you. It's like you got to go to the elk. Um, yes. And we've learned that early on. It's like you don't call you don't call the elk and turn around and get them to come back to you. You got to go get in the middle of the elk. Yes, so. I think that same thing. You got to go find elk. I never do good waiting for elk to show up or waiting for him <laughs> to be on a feed. Like you just got to go find elk and then you got to go get into him. But that's great. I love that aggressive hunting them, dang near running to keep up because that's always my experience too. Elk are so nomadic, but they just move so much. They love to move just even – if they aren't bumped from feeding to bedding, they love to go uphill and go miles. And, and then, you know, if they do get bumped, a lot of times, if I can keep with them, they will go back to be an elk. It might be, you know, miles and miles down the road, <laughs> drainages down the road. But um, I'm like you, where I'm trying to keep with those elk, I'm trying to keep with the herd, and sometimes you're running to keep up. But I think the secret to it is knowing when to slow down again, you know, is sometimes mm-hmm. you're running to keep up or you, like I all if I watch him go over a ridge. Well, then I'm going as fast as I can get to that ridge where I last saw him. And then as I start to come over the top, I'll start to slow up a little bit. But sometimes I'll sprint to where they just were and I'll just get there in time to see him going over the next ridge or mm-hmm. hear one bugle and he's still going. And then. Like I, I hunt them by sight and by sound, and so yeah, I'll just get to the next spot, and if I can keep hearing them bugle or I can see them again, then I can just keep trying to chase them, and I'm trying to catch up to that herd and then kind of get into them a little bit, but the key is coming up over all those rises or coming up exposing a new drainage or whatever the case is, is like being able to really slow down and go into creep mode again because – those uh those big bulls are usually with cows and those cows are so good at catching me you know as I'm trying to trail them. Yeah, we're gonna get all your listeners to start running elk down. <laughs> but that's uh, I think you said it well though. It's the secret is figuring out how to cover enough country but slow down at the right times. Um, and that's I don't know that's kind of hard to learn at times. But um, it's I, I probably learned that from my uncle. He was very much a slow down at the right time. Um, and then I've just always been aggressive. So just kind of blending those two, you know, the lessons that I learned from my uncle and then just my desire to just cover country. So, yeah, well, it's extremely effective. You guys turn up some good bulls and are able to get, uh, good arrows in them. But yeah, I think that's, I, I think that's a, that makes for a really good elk hunter, those tactics that you developed. And I think, yeah, I think mine are really similar as I try to be aggressive and go in them and, um, I try not to make too many mistakes, you know, this year there was a couple of mistakes made, but overall I played it pretty good, you know, as knowing when to slow down and getting into him. But it sounds like 2018, you guys played it about perfect where you located <laughs> good bowls, you know, and then what was your bowl? Was that that one in, that was in Eastman's recently? Uh, so that's the bowl I killed two years ago. Um, the one that was in Eastman's just a month or so oh, ago. That, that was an amazing bull too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was a, you, that was a bull I killed in eighteen. Yep. Okay. Uh, but and, yeah, just the mm-hmm. uh, the way you hunt them, so aggressive and keeping up with them, and then you just kind of rely upon your instincts and get you in close and then make it happen. Uh, how did it come together on that bull? Did he have a bunch of cows? 
so the bull that I killed in 18, um, he had, there were not a lot of elk in that area that we were hunting. And my brother didn't draw that tag with me that year. It was actually my cousin that was with me that year. And we, to be honest with you, I had not even seen a bull in 14 days of hunting. Um, we'd heard maybe one or two. So that, like I said, the elk density was just super low in the unit that we were hunting that year. And it was the second to last day of the hunt, you know, without retelling the whole story. Um, we'd finally heard a bull, bull bugle. They were moving up a uh, canyon. Um, and so we'd circled up around to try to catch up with them. And he had, I think we saw three cows in one group and then another cow that he was actually dogging. So four cows with him. Um, and we were able, to, well, we tried calling him in and he didn't want anything to do with us. And it was, I think it was actually the cows and they kind of just kept taking him away. And so they got into a feeding area or into their bedding area. And when they got into their bedding area, we knew they were kind of settling down for the bed. And I knew the bull would probably be restless enough. And we were fortunate enough to slide right in the middle of where they were bedding at. And three of the cows actually went up to our left. And the last time he had bugled, he was down to our right. And we just slid right in between them. And we'd been sitting there probably for 10 or 15 minutes, just kind of waiting for the elk to move around and figure out where they were at and settle into their beds. And nothing was really going on. So I just let out a real little bugle thinking, well, maybe I'll just challenge him. Because we were, it was real thick timber, and we were probably inside of 100 yards of all the elk. And when I did that, that bull just, you know, let off a scream at us. And the cows were actually behind us. And when, when I bugled and then the bull bugled, the cows started chirping as well. And so it's like, oh, man, this is perfect. Well, when they did that, he just went nuts and couldn't stand it and come storming up the hill to try to figure out what bull had slid in there. And I would just kind of set myself up in the right spot. The bull walked by me at 10 yards. Um, that's probably one of the closer bulls I've ever shot, and it's definitely the biggest bull I've ever shot. Um but it's, again, being aggressive, going going hard, but knowing when to slow down right in their bedding areas, you know, wow. just like what you're talking about. Yeah, that's, uh, that is so cool. Well, and also, um, you know, it, it seems like you use um, all tactics in your toolbox, like you're not married to one tactic or another. And I, I think it's um, great how, how much you use your spot and stock skills to eventually call that bull in, you know, that you got in so tight to those elk where he didn't have a choice. He had to come check you guys out. Uh, I think that's really cool. And I saw you killed another great bull this year, 2019. And then mm-hmm. did you, was that sheep hunt this year as well? It was. I drew a Colorado sheep tag this year as well. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. yeah what yeah. a what a great sheep. That had to be an awesome adventure um, uh, up north of you in Colorado there. It was. Um, I drew one of the only non-resident tags in the unit I drew, right? So they issue archery only in Colorado, and I drew one of the tags. Um, so all my summer was invested just to scouting for that sheep hunt because it's like how many times in your lifetime are you ever going to have a sheep tag in your pocket? Uh, so I spent, well, if you remember right, this spring we kept getting snows, and I was worried that I was going to have snow right up until my hunt started. And so the first, I think the first time I was able to get into the high country to scout for sheep was the 4th of July weekend. And then I spent every weekend in July and a few extra days in uh, Colorado scouting for that sheep hunt. Um, but that's, 
I don't know. For me, that's been like the pinnacle is I always wanted a sheep tag with my bow and harvest a, a ram with my bow. Um, so to accomplish that is just, even though it's not a giant sheep, it's just a huge um, feeling of accomplishment for me anyways. That's amazing. So. Yeah, that's uh, definitely on on my list too. Um, just the country they live in and, and, and the wildness of the whole adventure up in the steep and up in the rocks. And then the, the sheep are such beautiful animals. But that is no easy feat what you accomplish. That is real sheep hunting where you're at. And those are tough units down there. All those bow units are, you know, I... I've looked at those same units, so um, you you definitely put in your work, especially scouting, you know, all through July and that. Uh, what an amazing feat! Yeah, congratulations. So you were able to to locate uh, that ram. Was he with a band of rams or by himself? He was. So he was with two other younger rams. Um, we'd hunted. So the first part of the hunt, we hunted a different area, got into some sheep. There wasn't quite as many sheep in that area. Um, and then it just, it didn't work out and we weren't finding a lot of rams. So I shifted gears to another area that I'd found a few more sheep on. Um, and we were coming into maybe the back door of where we were trying to get into. And in the process of doing that, we'd found these, the three rams running together and the ram I killed was the biggest of the three. And, you know, just was fortunate enough, found them in the right place, was able to get in close enough to actually get an arrow in him. So it had to be a fun play on top of the mountain like that when you finally did get a chance. Was that your uh, first stock on them? <laughs> uh, on that group of rams. It wasn't the first stock. I actually missed a shot. I don't know if I should admit that, but I missed a shot earlier in the hunt um, in the other area that we were on. Mm-hmm. But that's that's the first stock on the three rams that I killed. Um, and then, you know, I got the one shot at that ram that I harvested. But my brother was with me. Um, he actually videoed through a phone scope. He was actually able to video the shot when I made the shot. Um, but yeah, talk about hugs and high fives and tears of joy on the mountain, um, all over, a, all over a bighorn sheep. So, <laughs> Oh, how cool. That is so neat. Uh, yeah, that, that missing, that seems to happen to all of us. None of us are immune to it. Uh, what do you think happened on the miss on the Ram? You know, um, I would love to know exactly. So when I ranged the ram, I ranged him. Let me see if I can remember the yardages exactly. I think I ranged him at like 62 yards, um, which, you know, I dialed my sight exactly to 62. And when I shot, I had a ton of confidence in my shot. And I ranged the animal. I've always had a practice of making sure that I ranged the animal multiple times. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and when I drew when I drew and stood up, the ram actually stood up out of his bed and he was slightly quarter to me, but pretty much broadside. And when I shot, everything felt really good. Um, in fact, I thought I'd hit the ram, but when he ran off, I'm like, I don't think I actually hit him, but my air was so close, I, maybe I did. And so I ended up getting over there to find my arrow and found out I'd shot right underneath the ram. And when I, I don't, I think I ranged him before I even went over there. There was a rock right next to where the ram was bedded. And when I ranged the rock after the fact, it actually ranged at 67 yards, not 62. And so I don't know for sure. And that's, you know, in that high country, it's not like you got trees and brush and everything in your way or even a lot of grass. It was like a ravine between me and the ram. So I don't know why my rangefinder was five yards off um, and how it all played out, but the only thing I can chalk it up as is that night before we could even get back to our camp, 
it started lightning and raining and the hillside that we were on was just a nasty hillside. And I honestly believe if we'd have shot that sheep on that hillside that night trying to recover them, it would not have been, it would not have ended well for us if I could have even found him and recovered him that night. And then if I wouldn't have found him, I'm sure it would have washed all the blood away. And I don't know if I'd have found him the next day. So, you know, sometimes things happen for reasons and purposes. And there was probably just a reason why I was not supposed to harvest that ram. Um, but I can't answer why my rangefinder was five yards difference between when I ranged him versus after the fact when I ranged. Yep. So yeah, that that's a strange one there. Uh, it it always baffles me when I can't make sense of what happened. I always like to figure out like why it missed or why it hit, you know. <clears> but <throat> sometimes there are no answers, or you can't solve the really. You can't have those moments back, so you kind of just have to piece together what you can and go. Well, it is what it is. It's uh, got to move on. Mm-hmm. Let's go try another one, right? So. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, uh, what a cool experience. And then I also saw that you um, hunted Audad sheep. How was that experience? <laughs> we did, um, or I did anyways. So that's been one of my goals is actually hunt Audad or Barber sheep with my bow. I harvested one with a rifle in New Mexico. You know, we've got the three exotics. you got Ibex, Oryx, and Barber sheep or Audad. <clears throat> and I just can't seem to draw a tag in New Mexico. Um, anymore. I think the last tag I drew was in 12, and then I got fortunate enough to get a tag again this year. But um, I decided, well, just through mutual friends and whatnot, I actually talked to Aaron Snyder and got a contact for a place that he had hunted in Texas for Audad. Um, and just talking with the outfitter, with Scotty Campbell and whatnot, I just decided, man, that sounds like the hunt that I would love to go do. Um, it's free range, lots of rams. Um, spot and stocks you're not sitting in the feeder you're not sitting in a tree stand you actually you know get to hunt them just like you'd hunt mule deer sheep or anything else so it's just sounded kind of like my style of hunt um and i didn't after the well so i ended up harvesting my ram the first day which makes it sound like it was easy but after that first day all day long i'm like i don't know if i'm going to be able to get this thing done with my bow just because of the way that everything played out um but it worked out where when the rams were in a field and they're just opposite of mule deer or anything else, they fed all day long. And in the evening, they headed in for their beds. And so it was about an hour before dark. We just kind of crept up to the edge of the field waiting to see how things would play out. And they were 120 to 140 yards out in the field. And it's like, yeah, there's nothing you're going to do here. And then just like, I don't know, they all all through all the rams picked up their head all at once and then all started running off the field and when they exited the field they were probably like 90 yards away a little bit too far away um and they dropped into a ravine when they dropped into that ravine it's like well this is go time right i mean you get up and hustle now and so we ended up you know getting up to our feet and running to where the hot ad crossed the fence and went down into a ravine and when we got over to that edge, we could see the tops of the horns, and they were just kind of milling around in a little ravine right there. We were able to just get a cedar tree um, between us and the rams and then just belly crawled right on up to, I think I shot my ram at 32 yards. Um, so, you know, they just kind of milled around for a while and then fed out into an open spot where I had an open lane. And I don't know if I shot the biggest ram or not, but it, to me at that point, it's like, yeah, that was a good ram. 
he gave me a good opportunity. I wasn't going to pass that up. Um, yeah, you made a really good shot on him. So. Oh, good on you. It's a beautiful, big, mature ram. Uh, those things mm-hmm. are just a wild-looking sheep. Yeah, that that mm-hmm. interests me. I got the invite to go down this winter or this spring coming up to go down and hunt them. Uh, exactly like what you're talking about, the free range spot and stock, a lot of odd ad on the ranch and not many guys hunting them. Um, so I'm really excited to try it out. So I saw that, that photo of that big mature odd ad and I had to hear the story on it. <laughs> yeah, you should take it up. You know, people think that it's an easy hunt or this or that, but they're a wild animal, no, no different than anything else. So it's a lot of fun and they're just a different creature too. Just the shafts on them, the big mass on the on the horns so everything about them is way cool yeah i've um, always thought that hunting different species in different habitats and i don't get too hung up on introduced or native i mean even these introduced animals have been living 200 years you know in some of these places <laughs> and so i mean you even look at elk yeah. in utah or new mexico you're talking like the last 50 years you know and so mm-hmm. they were introduced in those spots and i know they were there originally but i don't get too hung up on um you know whether it was introduced or not i just like the challenge of different species and i like i like looking at different animals through my scope and observing them and it I, it's just what uh excites me and so yeah that looked like the perfect hunt for me and i've i've always wanted to hunt your guys's ibex there i've been applying for that for years uh, maybe oh, someday yeah. they'll give me a tag there to go try it out but that that's really cool um good on you for taking on a new adventure and um you know not being able to draw the tag but go down and hunt them in a different place like that yeah it's just find opportunities right so <clears throat> i mean there's there's plenty of opportunities out there it's if you want to go bad enough just figure out how to kind of piece things together and what's your priority list and which ones you want to do first um and that's the i don't know that's just been one that's been on my list for a while and it was the right opportunity at the right time. So yeah. That's and lu- a- luckily a supporting wife to let me go do it too. Right. Yeah. That's a big so. key. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. But no, I like what you said about figuring out what's important to you and, um, going on some adventures. Uh, we only live once and, um, there's a lot of opportunities out there that's affordable to everybody. If you make it a priority and, and even, you know, the, the hunting, you know, that you've done right around where you live, the, the mule deer hunting, you guys have done so good at that, the elk hunting and uh, bighorn sheep. Um, yeah, it's just wild. You're sure making the most out of where you live. Mm-hmm. Coos deer too, right? Uh, got yes. Arizona, New Mexico, and go chase coos deer. So yeah, so what, you what do you, you want, right? Right. Uh, have you chased those coos in New Mexico much? I have. I've actually shot two coos um, with a muzzleloader, and then in New Mexico, mm-hmm. and I think I've shot two or three coos deer in Arizona with my bow. Oh, good um, for you. So yeah, they're they're a fun fun deer to chase as well. So they're a switched on little deer, aren't they? Oh, yeah, they're wired so tight. <laughs> yeah. I, I love and, the style in which you hunt them, though. I love the habitat that they're in in those mountains in there or all the way on the desert floor. But they they live in really cool terrain to, you know, really fun terrain to hunt as a Western hunter and uh, really switched on. That's where um, uh, you got to you got to be patient. But then again, during the rut, those things are cruising around so much. Sometimes you just got to get in front of one. <laughs> yeah and they're neat though i mean there's one of the smallest targets to try to shoot at um and then they test your glassing skills probably better than anything else you know depending on if you're hunting them when they're roaming and cruising or if you're hunting them when they're bedded up and tight 
Oh, um, that's the absolute so. truth. They're probably the toughest animal I've I've ever glassed. I mean, they live up to their reputation of the gray ghosts. They just mm-hmm. appear and disappear, and um, they can be in a, the middle of a, a wide open meadow, and you take your eyes off them for a second, and good luck of trying to find them again. That gray yep. coat in that desert terrain, they just blend in perfectly. So you're right. They they make you way better at glassing, don't they? And they make you better at stalking. Like each of these species kind of improves on your skill set in one way or another, but definitely in glassing. I mean, that's made me a believer of tripoding up my binos. That makes such a difference to have a still bino to look through and then really believing in the vantage points. Even though there's a lot of coups around, you can't just really hike around and bump into good bucks. I mean, you can mm-hmm. if you choose the right ridge lines and stuff, but just like you were saying, mule deer. You know, there's a lot of country they're not, and so, you know, finding those good vantage points is so key to cover miles of terrains with your with your eyes, and then figure out where the bucks are, or the, you know, I always like hunting the actual buck I can see, rather than a phantom one that I've made up that I'm trying to jump mm-hmm. in the forest or something, but yeah, they, they sure make you better at glassing. They do, yeah. I think you said it right, too. It's like, don't go chasing something you can't even see hunt the buck that you can actually see and then, you know, make your plan like your play there. So that's exactly right. If I can see him, I can kill him. Mm-hmm. Well, not in other always, words, but otherwise wave that white flag at you, right. As I run away. So. Oh yeah. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. They're good mm-hmm. at catching you. They're good at catching movement too. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, thanks so much for taking the time, man. I've had a good time talking with you. It's so fun to compare and contrast, uh, different styles of hunting and especially to talk to somebody that lives um, down in the southern united states and does so well yeah thank you man appreciate it thanks for the invite yeah and congrats so. um on, on all your success and i can't see uh can't wait to see what you turn up here next year uh, thanks brian yeah, keep it up man i love your podcast love what you're doing and the content you're putting out i appreciate it a lot oh thanks so much so. Uh, i appreciate it well we'll keep in touch all right okay all right, that's a wrap, guys. Um, great conversation. Man, I got a lot out of that. Uh, I really like that guy, Omni. Um, so I want to thank him for being on the podcast. I want to thank Sig Sauer for giving me that scope to give away. That's just incredible. Um, High-end glass, be able to give it to a great guy like that. Uh, just means the world to me to, to have these good sponsors that stand behind the podcast and you know, I'll pay for for all this content that I'm able to put out. So um, thanks to Sig Sauer. Make sure to check them out. If you're in the market for rangefinder, binoculars, in the market for a new spotting scope, um, that the, the BDX system is awesome, how it links all those together. Uh, great company, and um, thanks again to those guys. Uh, I also want to thank Everly Stock Packs, building uh, great packs and standing behind them. It's just a great company. Uh, they, they've got a whole bunch of options for you. So if you're in the market for a new pack, make sure to check out Everly stock. And with that, that's a wrap. So just getting back from this show. Um, yeah, really fun to meet everybody in the podcast, uh, or, or not meet everyone, but meet, uh, meet a lot of great guys that follow the podcast, uh, you know, meet face to face with our sponsors. Um, man, we put down an, uh, we put down a bunch of awesome podcasts. I did this Zamberlin podcast with Zamberlin Boots that absolutely blew my mind. There is more information in that podcast. That I, there's more than I even thought I could learn about boots and um, function and, and what Zamberlin's doing as a company. It's just an awesome podcast. I sat in with Ike 
And uh, Guy, I think, sat in on that one as well. And so the four of us, and just all three of us, our minds were just blown at at Zamberlin, um, you know, the the fitting of the boots and the uh, the care of them and how you can ruin a set of boots, which is what I've done a couple times. So it's just an awesome podcast. So stoked to release that to you guys. Got some other good ones in there. Um, and then make sure, uh, if you don't have a subscription to the magazine, make sure to check it out. Just the best Western hunting magazine out there. We have the Eastman's hunting journal, which is the rifle journal. And then we have the Eastman's bow hunting journal, which is everything with a bow and arrow. Again, we got our staff articles, which I just pour my heart and soul into. And I know the other guys do too. Um, I, I just try to give you guys the pertinent information to help make you successful. Like the podcast, it's just a different format where I get to really think about my word choice and I also get to include pictures in there that goes with the story that help describe things you know picture can be worth a thousand words so it's just a different format that I love to do and um, I try to write in there as much as I can throughout the year and do as many projects as I can as I can come up with and uh, our other staff writers do a great job as well uh, and then the subscriber stories are just off the hook um, you guys have become just as good a writer as, as uh, writers as I am or the other staff writers um, just awesome Om He's been in there a couple times. Um, yeah, I really like that Tony Treach one, that last one that came out. Um, just great stories in there. And then the MRS section. Um, man, these guys are constantly evolving, this MRS section. I am so impressed with this year's information that I'm getting already. Uh, they just really line you out on the the best units in the state, uh, kind of some middle round good some middle ground good units. Um, we call that our blue chip, green chip units, and then some marginal units and and uh, some information on those, like to to draw tags and and to get familiar with an area. But it gives you percentages of public land. It gives you you know they rate everything from access to trophy quality to um, uh, public land to you know whatever the case is they give you success rates for the last three years and they just break down all these statistics and all these these different categories and species and it's it's just been a, a major factor in teaching me um, you know how to learn the West and what it has to offer and so um, right now on the podcast we have a new code um, so you can text elevated 220 which is the size of my buck next year. <laughs> I wish, right? Uh, elevated 220, text that to 22828. Um, that'll get you um, 12 issues. That's six issues of the Bow Hunting Journal, six issues of the, the Hunting Journal. Uh, it'll also get you a free outdoor edge knife, which is a re- replaceable blade knife. Um, they're pretty sturdy knife. Uh, you can change the blades on them. You can butcher an entire elk with them. Uh, they just make great knives. And so, uh, they're going to do, uh, 12 issues, the outdoor edge knife, $49 and free shipping for all of that. So, uh, you can text that information again, text elevated 220, the size of my buck to 22828. Uh, you can also put that promo code in at the, um, on the website and get the same deal. Uh, so thanks, you guys, for the support. Uh, really helps me out. Um, thanks for all the iTunes reviews and, and uh, the shares lately. Man, it's just been incredible, the the support of the podcast, and we just continue to grow this thing. And um, I just want to continue to perfect my craft and put out the best content. I think I say that every time that I talk to you guys. But uh, it's true. Like, I'm just always trying to get better, and improvement just comes so slow. So, um 
really working hard at that. And then, um, yeah, I got some things in the works to give you guys some more content. Um, so we'll see how that goes. I'm going to start working away and kind of talks and doing that, uh, doing uh, like a different style, like maybe doing some fly fishing content. So I don't know. We'll see how that all goes. But um, so some cool things in the works. And um, yeah, I just want to continue to to work hard and, and uh, put out good into the world. And um, good seems to come back. What you put out in the world comes back to you. So um, man, got home, got a ski in yesterday with Gunny, going to get a run in today, taking care of family stuff, work stuff, podcast stuff. And, uh, then I'm back out, uh, going to head out to the Olympic Peninsula steelhead fishing. Just, man, I mean, um, I mean, going to coastal rainforest with, uh, just old growth hemlock and firs and cedars and uh, just the smells alone. And then all this underbrush, these ferns and just looks like Jurassic park. And, uh, these glacial fed rivers are just teal blue. It's just like, yeah, my eyes hardly even believe it's, it's right. And I grew up like two hours from this place and it's fishing for these coastal steelhead that are just, um, some of the hardest fighting fish on the planet. And they're so close to salt. They're so bright. They can just be silver sea lice on them. And you catch about a third of the fish you hook. If you're doing good, you know, you hook one and they're so acrobatic and out of the water. And sometimes you just get a fresh pulse of fish that come in on like a moon tide, come in and fill up the system and they're just in there, but they just came from the ocean that day. Those fish are so hot. Want to get back to the ocean and they're, they're just, they're out of the water more than they're in it and making these, these huge runs under the boat, round the oars, or if you're fishing them from the bank, you're running up and down the bank trying to keep the right angle on them. You're just doing everything you can do to make the right moves. Like you catch, I catch all these brown trout and all these different fish, but this tests all the skills that I've put together because you have to do absolutely everything right to touch one of these things. And then Washington protects their steelhead. You can't even take them out of the water. And so you just kind of bathe with them in the water when you catch this thing that's as big as your leg that you just fought for 20 minutes. Dude, it's the absolute pinnacle. So um, to say I'm stoked would be an understatement. I am ready. So I'm going to get all my work done here, probably try to get, get a run in here, and then um, – yeah, probably try to leave early in the morning, get out there and go fish for some steelhead. So uh, podcast is out for the week. Uh, get you a new one out next week. Um, as always, guys, I'm so humbled by all the support of the podcast, reposting things. Man, it just means the world to me. So uh, thanks, you guys. Chat at you soon.